Good evening. Well, uh, Pedro Calderon de la Barca once said, when love is not madness, it is not love. Love is a crazy thing, and it causes us to do crazy things. Uh, Readers of the magazine, Real Simple Magazine, wrote in stories of how love caused them to do crazy things. One woman said this, In college, I took skydiving lessons and jumped out of a perfectly good airplane to impress a new boyfriend who was really into adventure and risks. On my first and only jump, the parachute malfunctioned, forcing me to do away with it, and then struggle and free fall to pull my reserve chute. Thank goodness I had paid attention in class. Another woman said this, Three years ago, I left my family, my friends, my career, my apartment, basically my whole life, and moved from France across the Atlantic just to be with a man I had met only five months before. It was the best decision of my life. I am the happiest I've ever been with my wonderful husband and my beautiful seven-month-old daughter. One last woman from the magazine said this, It was my husband who did a crazy thing for love. When I was having chemotherapy for breast cancer, my husband shaved his head. It wasn't until we went out together after he had done it that I realized how much the gesture meant to him. It made my boldness seem more normal during a very abnormal time in my life. Those were some pretty incredible, crazy gestures that were done for love, but not quite as crazy as this last one. Um, This was done by a man by the name of Alexei Baikov, and he proposed to his girlfriend in a very unique way. Uh, He was supposed to meet his girlfriend at a certain location, and he thought it would be a good idea to hire a stunt crew, a uh, a script writer, actors, to stage his own death. Uh, So he marred up his car and set this whole stage uh, straight with uh, fake blood and everything. When she got there, a paramedic actor came up and said, told her that uh, her boyfriend had passed away. As she was crying and mourning, he jumped up and came up around her and said, and got down on one knee and asked her to marry him. That was a crazy thing that was done for love, but even more crazy, she said yes. I have no idea what she was thinking. But I look back on the time when I fell in love with Stephanie, and love made me do some crazy things. Uh, You know, I, I went from a very, very cautious person to... A slightly reckless person. Slightly. (laughs) Like I was usually in bed, or at least at home, like by 8 o'clock. And after that, I was out to maybe 11 or 12, and I was tired the next morning. You know, if I was in the vicinity of her work, even if I was only 15 or 20 minutes away, I would sometimes go and get her a coffee and drive there to get her a coffee. I was pretty thrifty, like to save money, but when I met her, it was like, it doesn't matter anymore. Money doesn't matter anymore. I remember going to a wedding one time, and uh, I don't like to dance. I'm not good at dancing. Uh, but Stephanie likes to dance, and she's pretty good at dancing. So I started dancing, dancing like a crazy person. And I remember like doing this Cupid shuffle, and everybody else is going this way, and I'm going this way. And then they're turning around, and I'm not turning around, and I'm just staring at them awkwardly. <laughs> and I'm just making a fool of myself, but I didn't matter because I was madly in love. 2,000 years ago, in a garden, we see that Jesus did something crazy. He did something reckless for love. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Matthew 26, 46 to 57. 
We'll start at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one who was, who was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck out the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come up against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this is taking place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and and fled. So chief priests and the elders and the crowd come against Jesus with swords and clubs. And we see that one of the disciples who we learned from the book of John was Peter. He draws his sword and he goes and he attacks the servant of the high priest. Now that would be a logical thing to do. An understandable thing to do. He's trying to protect his master. Trying to keep him from the fate that was coming to him. And yet Jesus says, he rebukes him and he says, don't you think that if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels to, to help me? Now think about the insanity of that. Think about the fact that the God of the universe, the God who spoke the worlds into existence, is going to choose to be limited, choose to be bound, choose to be imprisoned for the sake of humanity. That the Creator is going to be bound by the creation. That He's going to choose to give Himself into the hands of people who are going to brutally murder Him and torture Him. That He's going to be captive by His creatures. That He's going to be put on a cross that He helped grow. It's a reckless move. He has no regard for His life. And it's illogical from a human perspective. And when I say that it's reckless, I'm not saying that it was careless or unintentional, but I'm saying what he was doing, he was doing with no regard for his life. In his book, If I Were God, I'd End All Pain, John Dixon recalls speaking on the theme of the wounds of God. And he was speaking at this university campus, and uh, after his presentation, this Um, the moderator came up and asked for questions. And without any delay, a man in his mid-30s, a Muslim, stood up and he proceeded to tell the audience how preposterous it was that God would have wounds. That God would in any way limit Himself to the creatures. That He would have to eat or sleep. That He would have to go to the bathroom. Not to say, let alone die on the cross. And Dixon went back and forth for about 10 minutes with this man who insisted that God could not have any wounds, that God was the causer of causes, and it was illogical for him to experience physical or emotional pain caused by a lesser entity. In fact, he said it was outright blasphemy according to the Quran. Dixon later wrote this, 
He said, I had no knockdown argument, no witty comeback. The debate was probably too amicable for either approach anyways. In the end, I simply thanked him for demonstrating for the audience the radical contrast between the Islamic conception of God and that described in the Bible. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds as precious. God has wounds. Famous atheist Richard Dawkins, in a debate with John Lennox, said this. He said he, he, speaking of Lennox, believes that the creator of the universe, the God who devised the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the physical constants, that this genius of mathematics and physical science could not think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive. It's reckless, it's illogical that the God of the universe would come to the earth and suffer and die. But it's even more illogical why He would do that. That He would come and He would die for the crowds who opposed Him. The disciples who would abandon Him. Later generations who would ignore Him. Yet in so doing, He teaches us something very profound about the essence of what love is. And it teaches us that love is always reckless. Love is always reckless. It's not something that adds up. It's not something that we can understand. It's not something that makes sense from a human perspective. It never counts the cost. It always goes forward seeking the good of another. And we see throughout Jesus' life that Jesus demonstrated that and He taught that and it's culminated here in the cross. But we see it throughout Jesus' life. For example, look at Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you, you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus says, you've heard that it's said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now that makes sense from a human perspective. Someone gouges out your eye, you can gouge out their eye. Someone knocks out your tooth, you can knock out their tooth. It's a reciprocity. There's a sense of justice that makes sense to us. It makes sense that we would hate our enemies, that we would love those who are good to us. That makes sense from a human perspective. But it doesn't make sense to turn the other cheek. Someone hits you on your right cheek to turn the left. I, I mean, that's a reckless thing to do, right? I mean, if someone hits you on your right cheek, you'd think you would back up. You'd think you would raise your fist ready to fight. It's an illogical thing to do to turn the other cheek, but that's what Jesus calls us to do. Remember the story of the prodigal son. A man has two sons. The youngest son asks for his share of the inheritance. And he takes the inheritance and goes and spends it on riotous living with prostitutes and who knows what. Wastes all of the inheritance. 
Then he, when he hits rock bottom, he's serving pigs food, working on a farm. And he comes to his senses and he thinks to himself, I should go back to my father. At least if I go back to my father, I could become one of his servants. And so he goes back to his father's household and his father sees him in the distance, which probably indicates he was out there looking. And he runs toward him, doing something that was undignified. Older men in that generation did not run. That was something that young men did. And he runs towards his son who was lost. And he takes the best robe and throws it upon him. He takes a ring and puts it on his finger. He takes shoes and puts it on his feet. He takes and he calls his servant to kill the fattened calf. This doesn't make sense from a human perspective. I mean, when the son comes back and he's squandered all of his father's wealth or his portion of the wealth, you'd think that the father was going to give him a good talking to. I mean, this isn't the best parenting style, right? I mean, he needs to be taught a lesson. If anyone is going to get a party, it should be the older brother, right? But that's not how Jesus operates. That's not how the father operates. He throws a reckless party for his son who is lost. Luke 15, Jesus says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? Go after the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. I mean, what sense does this make? If one sheep gets lost, that God would leave the ninety-nine to find that one lost sheep. After all, it's only one sheep. He's got ninety-nine. And if he's going to care for any, shouldn't he care for the 99 and make sure they're protected and they're cared for? And after all, wasn't it the sheep's fault that he wandered off? And yet, the shepherd, the good shepherd, goes and seeks that one lost sheep. Remember how Jesus responded to the tax collectors and the sinners. Matthew 9 says this, And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, this isn't a very prudent thing to do. This is a little bit reckless. You are trying to become a political leader, right? You want people to follow you, and you're hanging out with tax collectors who Jews hate, and people of ill repute where you might get a bad reputation. I mean, it's a reckless thing to do to hang out with these types of people. Remember how Jesus dealt with Samaritans. Remember how he met a woman at the well. There were three strikes against him when he was doing that. First of all, he was talking to a Samaritan. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. The second, she was a woman. The third, he was meeting her at a well, which in the Scriptures was a place that was often associated with meeting a spouse. So all these things add up to make a very reckless move where God is going to talk to a woman, Samaritan, at a well about theology, and yet He does that and shows her love and tells her where she can find the living water. He tells a story about a Samaritan, a good Samaritan, something that 
Jews didn't believe existed. Someone who loved his neighbor at great cost to himself. Remember how Jesus responded to a woman of ill repute. Luke 7 says this, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus, do you know who this woman is? She's a prostitute. If she's touching your feet, she's going to make you unclean. This is not a person that you should have any kind of dealings with. And if you knew better, you would stay away from this woman. Yet that's not how Jesus operates. He loves recklessly. The way that He interacts with people, the things that He's teaching, the only way it can be described as reckless love. He says we should love our enemies. He hangs out with sinners. He discusses theology with a Samaritan woman. He allows a prostitute to wipe his feet with her tears. But these things are nothing compared to the way and the reason that he died. These things are nothing compared to the fact that he chose to die for you and for me. Because the truth is, we all have things in our life that are broken. Things that are beneath the surface that we would like to hide. Things that we maybe never even shared with anybody else before because we're afraid that we'll be rejected. This past week I was working at my parents' business. Uh, and They have a business where they take care of dogs and cats when people go on vacation. And uh, there was this room that was an empty room that you know the dogs are, in, uh, dogs are usually in. And I went in to vacuum this room and... I noticed that a couple of tiles looked like they were coming up a little bit. So I thought, okay, I'll go to the other side, get, get some glue, and then I'll come back and glue these couple of tiles down. It didn't look like it was that bad. I just glue the tiles down, it would be fine. So I get the glue, and then I come back, and I pull up the tile that looked like it was the worst, and I found there was water underneath. And then I pulled up another tile, and it just came up. Another tile came up. Another tile came up. Another tile came up. At one point I found an infestation of ants under there. I smelled this smell of incredibly rotted wood. By the time I was done, I had torn up two-thirds of the room, and I realized i got to replace the whole floor. This is hopeless. And in the same way, sometimes I think we put an appearance out to other people. You know, maybe we know that we're broken, but we pretend like we have it together at least somewhat. But there's brokenness beneath the surface. And truth is, if God were really smart, maybe He'd just start over. Maybe He'd just wipe us out. But He doesn't choose to do that. He chooses to love us. He chooses to show us reckless love. Love is always reckless. And today, on Good Friday, we reflect on that love. The love that left a throne room to come to the cross. A love that loved us so deeply, despite our sins, despite our brokenness, despite all the things that we've done wrong. When we get a glimpse of that love, it ought to change us. 
It ought to make us love God more deeply. First John says that we love God because He first loved us. He's the one who took the first move. He left heaven to win our hearts, to bring us back to the Father. So it ought to make us love God, but it also ought to make us love others as well. Because Jesus not only demonstrated reckless love, but He calls us to reckless love. Remember what Peter said to Jesus. He said, Lord, how often, will my, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Doesn't it seem reasonable that Peter would say, well, if my brother sins against me, I'll forgive him seven times? He probably thought he was being extraordinarily gracious. Seven times, that's this, for the same offense, that's pretty... Special. That's pretty reasonable. But Jesus doesn't call us to be reasonable. He calls us to be reckless in our love for others. But doesn't that mean that we're being pushovers? Does that mean that we're letting others walk all over us? That we would forgive someone 77 times or 70 times 7? If that's what Jesus calls us to do. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. He's forgiven us over and over and over again. So on this Good Friday, let us allow the love of God to encourage us. To remind us that we're deeply loved by God. We're deeply cherished by our Heavenly Father who sent His Son to die on the cross for us. But also let it encourage us to love with that same kind of reckless love. It's August 16th of 1987. Uh, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed to the ground. 155 people died that day on that flight. The only person that lived was a little girl who was four years old, whose name was Cecilia, uh, who was from Tempe, Arizona. Uh, According to uh, news reports at that time, uh, the first responders didn't believe that she was actually on the plane because everyone else was killed. Um, And the plane apparently landed on a highway, so they thought that she must have come from one of the cars that were on the highway. But they looked up on the manifest, and they found that she was indeed on that airplane. And what they discovered, or what they believed happened, was that when the airplane started going down, Cecilia's mother took her seatbelt off, and she got down in between the seats and put her daughter in front of her and held on to her with all of her strength until the plane crashed. And that was the reason that she survived. That's a picture of what Jesus did for us. He left the safety, the comfort of heaven. He took his seatbelt off, so to speak. And he came to the earth, was born in a manger, lived a sinless life and died on the cross for our sins, to shield us from death, to shield us from the coming judgment. That's a radical, reckless kind of love. It's something He didn't have to do. He was perfectly fine. He enjoyed fellowship with the Father from all eternity past. Probably was justified just to stay up there in heaven, but He didn't do that. He chose to love us with reckless love. Pedro Calderon de la Barca was correct. When love is not madness, it is not love. Love is always 
reckless. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your reckless love for us. We thank You that when You chose to love us, You didn't consider our sins, our brokenness. You didn't consider the fact that we were almost beyond repair, the Scriptures say, and be dead in our sins. We thank You that You didn't consider caution and what it would cost to Yourself, but You chose to dive into the situation and pay the ultimate price to die on the cross for our sins, experiencing the most gruesome death imaginable so that we could have life. Lord, I pray that we would get a hold of that, that that reality of what You've done for us would shape us and change how we live each and every day. And Lord, I pray that because of what You've done for us, we would be able to show reckless love to those around us. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for what You do to us, do for us, Lord. We thank You for Good Friday and Your sacrifice. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.